Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. This episode of Starving for Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Hello listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade and I am so pleased to have Hannah Moon here on the show today. Hana Moon is a PhD candidate at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. Originally from the Pacific Northwest, her interest is in avian conservation, and that's what brought her to the island of Kauai, where she helped the Kauai Endangered Seabird Recovery Project study the impacts of human infrastructure and lighting on endangered seabird populations. I'm so excited to talk to you today, Hannah, about your research on the impacts of humans on birds. But before we get into that, we actually start every show with the same request. Would you please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe? Yes, um, I think it's difficult to pick one. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty fortunate um, in the fact that I grew up near Mount Rainier, actually. I grew up under dark skies looking for constellations and spotting satellites when that used to be a rare thing <laughs> a couple decades ago. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and generally, you know, like when my heart hurts and I feel kind of disconnected from everything, I, I, I go and seek comfort in the night sky and all the most special people in my life share some stargazing story with me. So picking one is pretty tough. Because uh, the sky is what reconnects me with my sense of awe and humanity. But I do think, so one of my more unique experiences would probably be the first time I saw the night sky through night vision binoculars. Uh, and this is actually from Kauai when I was monitoring seabirds. Uh, and we were doing all of that out in the middle of the night. Uh, and the night sky there is already exceptionally dark. Um, and it was always beautiful on cloudless nights. But We've all seen those photos of space and like how dense stars can really look, but those are static right. images. And if you take that image and that's what night vision binoculars bring to life in the sky in front of wow. you. Uh, and dark skies really aren't dark at all. Like every part <laughs> of the sky is filled uh, with light and to the point that you can't see constellations anymore. Um, I got to see things like the arms of Andromeda with my naked eyes. I didn't have to use a t telescope. It was it was amazing. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Well, I, I wrote down when you were talking breaking bread, because a lot of times I'll recall that I've, once I've broken bread with someone that my relationship feels so much more intimate um, than someone I haven't just done the simple act of sharing food together. But the way that you talk about the night sky is actually in a similar vein that it has fostered and helped maintain a sense of intimacy between you and your close relationships on the planet. So I think that's a really interesting point that you note. So your research, you actually work at, at Dr. Megan Porter's lab, and she was also on the show. So we're just so happy to have another person. Um, she, when she was on the show, made the experience of working in that lab sound so fun and unique. And so um, we're just pleased to have you. And you uh, kind of came across some unanswered questions about seabird perception 
Um, and that kind of maybe is partly what brought you to this work. So what are some of the unanswered questions? Oh, so that's a bigger question than you think. Um, and <laughs> you're right, it is what brought me to this work. Uh, I wasn't a vision scientist before I started this degree. I was working, I, I was doing bird conservation. And when you're in that work and you don't have like a supervisor job, you're bouncing from seasonal job to seasonal job. And it's a lot more fun than it sounds. Um, the work is so varied and interesting. But I was working on the Kauai Endangered Seabird Recovery Project, uh, and I was building lasers, actually, which is kind of its own side story. Uh, but we were trying to use lasers to deter birds from power lines. And mm. it was it was really fun to be doing, um, but as that project had been conceived before I even got there, and as people had been dealing with uh, the issues of these birds and these streetlights, everyone had been trying to figure out what are these birds seeing? Why are they showing up under lights? Uh, are the lasers that we're using, can they, are they going to see them? Is it going to be the best choice? And when people were trying to find out the answer to that, we found out the answer is we don't know. And there really is no way for us to know. So uh, that's that's what brought me to this lab. Uh, there was an opportunity and they said, we need someone to uh, work on this particular project. And I said, that sounds interesting. And I don't think I fully understood what I was signing myself up for, but I am very happy that I am where I am. Yeah. So the goal then was to try and outline a power line with a laser so that birds could better see the form. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, and this is previous work. This isn't this is all stuff that uh, Kesserp was doing, the abbreviation for the Seabird Project. And the people on that project, mm -hmm. I should mention, they're now under ARC, ARC, uh, the Archipelago Research and Conservation. Uh, I'm not sure if that project is still going on, but the goal for when I was there, yeah. So the birds, they fly around at night and they hit the power lines. Um, and that was a big part of my job. I was out there at night with those night vision binoculars monitoring the power lines and waiting and watching to see when the birds would hit them. And they did a lot. <laughs> uh, it's interesting so we because okay. we often talk about with birds, is there a fatal flight into buildings, which is from a mirage of the reflected um, city or, or vegetation that basically tricks the bird visual system. But this is interesting because this is just straight up what planes have a problem with, which is not running into objects on the built planet. So it seems that we also have your very typical problems with birds that you might have expected at the outset, um, but that don't get the focus because the fatal flight into buildings is so massive. So that's that's interesting that you mention it. So you study the visual systems of procellary form seabirds. What is procellary form? Uh, so procellary form, and I, I might not even be saying that right. I think I've heard it's pronounced like three different ways at every conference I go to. So that just refers to the specific family of seabirds that have tube noses. Mm. Um, it's just one ah. set uh, group of birds. We're talking about albatross, storm petrels, and shearwaters. I see. And your focus is on modeling changes over life history in spectral and temporal aspects of vision. So let's dig into that. So over time, they're in their lifetime, the color of light has changed, the timing of light has changed. Is that basically what you're saying? Well, we're, we're curious about how their response to light changes over mm -hmm. time and how it changes between mm -hmm. species. Because the big problem with fallout, um, and I don't know if your listeners are gonna be familiar with this. Uh, so on Kauai and anywhere that we, uh, oh, and the, group of seabirds I work with, they also burrow. So anywhere we have these burrowing seabirds, every single year when the babies leave their burrow for the first time, they're doing it on their own. Uh, their parents have left, they're waiting until they get hungry enough to get that urge to fly. So we have these little birds and they leave their burrow for the very first time. And especially the ones up in the mountains, they're coming down from these super tall cliffs and their goal is to make it to the sea. Um, and these birds are about to engage on a, like a multi-thousand mile flight. It's really incredible how far these birds transit around the world and the ocean. But the problem is in the fall, the little birds, especially when there's no moon out or the weather's really bad, they don't make it to the sea. They land underneath our streetlights. Um, and these birds need a lot oh. of wind 
and they need a lot of space to get up off the ground. So they can walk on the ground, but they can't start flying again. They need someone to take them to a cliff or something. Wow. So they wind up trapped and their first instinct once they're in that situation uh, is to, especially when the sun comes up, is to go hide. So the birds often die uh, due to exposure if someone doesn't rescue them. And because they're in the streets, uh, there's also the chance that they could get hit by cars. So it's a really big problem. Um, it, it can be kind of invisible to a lot of people if you don't live in a coastal area where these birds exist, which is why a lot of people probably haven't heard about it. But it's a big problem all over the world. That is heartbreaking to think of these little babies being uh, drawn uh, to streetlights and then not able to really complete their first flight to where they needed to go. And it's just another example of how our lights are leading species and wildlife astray. Um, so your work focuses on understanding the physiological and molecular aspects of light perception in birds. So you're trying to really understand what does a streetlight look like if you're a bird and what are its impacts? So were there any success stories that came from this really sad, heartbreaking project? That <laughs> well, that, so the interesting uh part about my work is how much I discovered that we still need to find out to really answer that question. Um, mm -hmm. You were asking previously about like the changes over life history. So it's the juveniles that are showing up to light and we don't see the adults doing it. Um, so we have all these questions is, is it something about the color of the light? How do they see that color? What range of colors are they sensitive to? Does that change between adults and juveniles? Because the adult behavior is different from the, uh, from the babies. Um, is it different between these species? Because people think that bird vision is pretty conserved. Um, they have all these molecular studies uh, of the main proteins that control the, re the response to light. And in birds, everyone's like, ah, oh, it's fairly similar. But we, when we are out in the field, we see different species of birds showing up under lights at different rates. Um, and when we're trying to figure out colors, people have been spending a lot of time guessing at the colors. And some people say green is best. Some people say red is best, but there aren't really any good quality studies that answer that question well. So I came at this from the point of view where we think we don't know what we're studying. We don't know mm -hmm. what questions we're even asking when we're throwing out colored lights. Um, so my goal was to try to answer that question better. Um, and I wouldn't say that, I'd say we're probably a long way off from success. Uh, but I have found some very interesting things. Uh, in one of my studies, I'm actually measuring the electrical response of the cells in the eye to light. And I have actually just finished a lot of the final analyses for that. And I found that there is no difference between adults and juveniles and how their eyes are responding to light. So that indicates it's probably something learned. That's a behavioral thing. Or it also, could, or I guess it could also be higher up in the brain too. We don't know anything about higher order processing in, in non-humans. We barely know, know about it in humans, too. Right. And yeah, my my intuition told me that when you were saying that the juveniles behave differently around light versus the adults, that for me, I mean, I, I, I don't claim to be a scientist, but my intuition was just telling me that's just the editing that happens as an adult, that you can easily sift through information and think about what's important and what's not important. It's a lot harder to do that as a juvenile when every glinty object may mean something. And I talk about that just for my own human wisdom of, of seeing children fixated on uh, things before they realize the overall picture, which they don't have yet. But I, I can see you know i can see how that would also be a phenomenon in other living things that you just lack the ability to edit and curate information as a juvenile Absolutely. and there's a lot of talking... fear as a possibly. young little thing too yeah possibly seabirds are rather reserved especially when you have them uh when you have them in rehab or anything i've got to work with and see so many up close so they don't show their emotions the way some bird species do um <laughs> But yeah, like uh, it, it does make sense. Uh, seabirds are also really, really long-lived animals. We're talking about animals that set, have, they're, they're the species that have set records for the age of ringed birds. Think Wisdom, the albatross. Um, and the, the next two longest-lived banded birds, like Wisdom's really famous. Uh, a lot of people, uh, listeners may have heard of her. But the next two oldest banded birds are shearwaters in the same family that are 50, 60 years old. How old is Wisdom? 
she is in her 70s and she's still having chicks yeah these are very very long-lived birds wow wow i i definitely want to get into your whole relationship with birds on a personal level because i'm super interested i was on your linkedin page this morning and i did see all of the field work that you have been doing throughout your life um and so that's really interesting though that these banded birds actually we now know that they are how long they live um and so yes they may they must be able to edit and really learn and gain wisdom, like her name says, um, to be able to be uh, able to thrive on a planet where there's so much anthropogenic change happening. Um, and, and right now, as we speak, we're seeing 2% year over year increases in light pollution. It's happening all around us right now. And so that's surely impacting all of the birds you're researching. Um, and so basically you are seeking to better understand how we take data uh, for these avian models and then how we reconfigure our world around it. What is your great hope with your work? My great hope is that, well, like every ambitious PhD student, when you start, you think you're gonna solve the question. Um, I did not. Uh, right now, my great hope has, especially when I've been giving talks at conferences and sharing my work, my great hope is really to impress on people what we don't know and how inappropriate some of the assumptions that we make really are when we're trying. Uh, people are always trying to leverage vision to make change, especially when it comes to birds. We know they're visual creatures and humans are very visual creatures, but we're very biased visual creatures. We. <laughs> We assume that the way we see the world is going to be the way that, or at least close enough to the way something else sees it, but that's just not true. And I have come across, I've answered, people hear about my work and I've talked to people all over from uh, the fields of biology and uh, I've had talked to lighting designers and people always have questions and we really don't know that much about how birds see. And we really can't say that much about how they're seeing our lights and the answer to how we should change the lights is we really do need to invest more time and research into the actual visual like understanding the visual capabilities of these birds well it, it's really interesting that you talk about how we really just are making tons of assumptions and it's based on our own experience i often i often cite that red light uh, and correct me based on your research you're the expert in this field um, red light actually can send i have the citations but send birds in the wrong direction because it's coupled with their magneto reception um, and then red light also has been shown in studies to actually increase um, egg production in poultry so it's interesting that um, you you raised the issue that some people think red light is actually a better choice my my answer is always that there's nothing to replace darkness and that there's no perfect light there's no perfect combination of wavelengths and that if we over design to one species we'll in we'll just end up creating consequences for another species so um and i think that your approach i just want to tell our audience that you've won multiple awards at scientific conferences that you are really trying to get to the bottom of maybe some assumptions that we don't even know that we're taking um, to really get to the brass tacks of what is what these birds are seeing. And I think that that comes from a compassionate understanding of birds because you've spent so much time with them. So I just want to tell our listeners what you have actually done. Um, you were an SCA shorebird technician. You ah, were, yes. Um, I was with the National Park field... Service. Yes. And you were a um, field research assistant for the Kauai Endangered Seabird Recovery. Um, yep. You were also a, a wildlife survey volunteer with Mass Audubon. You were a bird banding assistant on Cape Cod. So um, can you talk about- Oh, there's what more than was... that too. Oh, <laughs> I think there's tell me more. I left off of that. Uh, <laughs> For, uh, I I prefer not to name the organizations, and I believe the names of them have changed anyway. But I also lived abroad in Costa Rica, and I worked with macaws down there. 
And mm -hmm. I lived in uh, Bonaire in the Caribbean for a little while working with some Amazon parrots too. So my point that I'm getting at is that <laughs> you have spent hardcore time with birds and multiple species. And that give, gave you a much more compassionate and very real life experience understanding these animals, which I think allows you as a, a scientific researcher to realize some assumptions that we're making from a human point of view. Um, and so what are some of, I, I'm a big believer that each species actually is a vessel of its own natural wisdom. So what are some of the lessons of natural wisdom that you've learned across some of the species you've worked with, whether it's the macaws or, um, and I'm going to get into the pigeon because I think you have a pet pigeon. Is that true? <laughs> oh, no, you went and found him. Oh, yes. Uh, I did. I, wish... I did. I'm in my office. I was... <laughs> he's, not, he's not at a point where I could show him off on camera for the YouTube folks, but yeah. Uh, oh, I feel like that's a bit of a broad question and definitely would uh, go beyond my science and the way I approach birds from a scientific point of view. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. Because in my point of view, the night sky bonds us all through our, the fact that we're living things and that your research in science is very valuable, but as a human, your perspective is very valuable. Oh, that's a really nice way to phrase it. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you're absolutely correct. I, where I wound up here is 100% the result of the journey of my experiences and what I found worked and didn't work from negative and positive experiences out in the fields that you listed. And yeah, I, birds, birds are all just so varied and different. Um, and their behavior, uh, any, any bird watcher will tell you like how interesting and amazing birds are and uh the different how complex they can be um when mm. i'm not much of like a bird watcher the kind of person who goes out and count birds um i think yeah. i've done a few lists but uh i do really enjoy watching birds just in the wild and i've introduced a lot of like my friends to how to watch birds because once you spend more time watching birds and the other animals around you you can see a lot more of Uh, the, the phrase humanity has way too much hubris behind it. It's not humanity. Um, it's the, the shared way that creatures kind of go about living there. Yes. They, totally. have, they have their own wants, their needs. They can be violent. They can be jealous. Uh, so there, there's little dramas that play out in your backyard. If you have one uh, or on the street, uh, if you're in a city that you can watch them every day, if you take the time to look. <laughs> it's, it's so true. I, I often, see animals and feel their emotions. And you were actually saying that some bird species are more emotional than others. What are some oh. of the emotional bird species? Well, I would say, um, I would also hesitate too much to assume too much about the inner life of any animal. Uh, but the ones That's that I true. definitely would say that can be super emotional. Um, I, I worked with macaws and parrots for so long. They are so expressive. They are, they, they have so many feelings. They uh, they def they get depressed. They hurt like we do. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. They are uh, they're pretty incredible. Uh, and it's also one of the reasons I don't believe in pet birds like that at all anymore. Just because I, you you see a bird get so sad, it self mutilates. Like we know how that feels. I, I can't do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So you have a pet pigeon. And I so I was on your listeners. If you would like to see Hannah's pet pigeon, you can follow her on Instagram, sorry, on Twitter at Seabirds Eye View. And it's EY. There's also more of my actual science there, too. He's uh, he's one of my. Oh, he's one of my and we're going to. <laughs> We're going to jump back to your science. Don't worry. Don't worry. But I think it's an important resting place to note your history and how you come to this science, because I think it's a very valuable asset that contains information um, and intuition that you are leveraging here by debunking some of the assumptions that you have been able to pick apart so easily. So um, you, you say that a pigeon is actually a great pet species or a great species to study. Um, so they can are. you talk about why you, yeah, why you got this pigeon and what he's offering, he or she's offering you? 
well, I would call him my PhD emotional support pigeon. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a, I mean, I knew it was a lot of work going into it, but man, living it is another story altogether. But mm. uh, yeah, no, um, I spend a lot of time. I've had birds most of my life and I wanted another one around and I wanted one that was the right fit. Uh, and pigeons have been domesticated for, we actually don't know how long, between five and 10,000 years. They've been... They've been wow. part of that intertwined. Oh, yeah. Um, a podcast about pigeons would be its own thing. So I'll keep this short. Uh, but yeah, they've been intertwined with humanity going way back. Uh, and we've domesticated them for so long and they've gone back and forth between the wild for so long. We actually can't really define when the rock pigeon evolved because the genes have mixed back and forth so many times. <sighs> it's... Uh, yeah, they are wonderfully intelligent. Uh, they're a lot quieter than parrots, and they display that intelligence differently than a parrot might. Uh, parrots are big, they're flashy, they're loud. They uh, they get a lot of people's attention that way. But like my bird picked up target training. If you do that with dogs or any other creatures, he picked that up in one session. He's very, very smart. Wow. Um, and he's very low maintenance in a lot of other ways too. Parrots are destructive. Uh, they need so much. and. He just wants to hang out and lay there. It's great. <laughs> so, so, and you were also banding birds on Cape Cod. What was that field work like for you? Ah, so that was a, that was actually a volunteer gig. Um, the woman I was doing with that with, her name was Sue. Uh, I just wanted to hang out and ban some birds. I hadn't done enough of that. Um, and that can be a whole job for some people who do ornithology. And it was a lot of fun. She ran this massive mist netting site. I think she ran up to 35 nets. Um, it was wild, but it was so much fun. We'd get there before dawn, set them up. And uh, because we weren't running just a few nets, we had to, it was a small island, but as soon as the nets were up, you're just like running around looking for birds and you get one out of the net so that they don't hurt themselves or get stuck in the sun and closing nets as the sun comes up. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and the data for that project, uh, it's mostly local monitoring, but it's very interesting because you get all kinds of uh, banding projects anywhere, really, uh, especially when you have a big, long-lasting station like that in one spot. You get a lot of information on what species are coming through when, how many uh, recapture birds. Uh, a lot of data comes out of places like that. So it was a lot of fun to be involved for a summer there. Yeah. And so now here you are, you, you've basically spent much of your adult life connecting with birds in field work, um, and, and then you've come to this research. So what is the goal of your PhD? What do you want to pursue? And um, how does that help to inform the world about light pollution? So the goal of my PhD is to better characterize the light that these seabirds can see. And characterizing light, uh, just to understand what can be physically detected is far more complex than what we, what is currently at least available in the literature. Uh, you have to know how the cornea and um, all the goo essentially in the middle of the eye, you have to know how that filters light. You have to know, so birds are really interesting because they have oil droplets in their photoreceptors. Um, and I wish I could show you a picture. Uh, I think they're beautiful. If you have trypophobia, you might not like them. Uh, but there's these oil droplets in their eyes that filter the light before it gets to the actual photoreceptor itself. Then you have to know uh, the visual pigments at the end of that photoreceptor. You have to know what wavelengths of light those are sensitive to. And you also have to know uh, the distribution of all of those visual pigments across the eyes, because birds have five kinds of them. And if you don't know where they are, uh, that can like where they are can change what what kinds of light different parts of the eye are sensitive to. And I've seen that um, in a tropic bird. I did some physiology on a tropic bird, and it had this really crazy divide in its eye, where the top half of its eye had oil droplets of one shape, uh, had mostly of certain shapes and colors up here, and the lower half of the eye was completely different. And that's all about that horizon boundary that that bird is looking at. So it's seeing the land, it, it, its eye is developed to see the land and the sky, or the sea beneath it and the sky differently. Um, and those are things wow. that- yeah, and those are things that you miss if you're doing what most bird studies have, uh, both due to limited availability of species or technology. Um, usually people are just looking at 
the molecular component of the pigments, like how on a molecular level do those pigments control that sensitivity to light, but it's just one piece of the picture. So my goal is to get at least one or two more species and get it in species that are overlooked. The ocean is a completely different spectral environment than land and all the birds that we have any really great understanding of their vision, uh, great, I would put in quotes, <laughs> uh, at least as far mm -hmm. as uh, birds, they're all land birds, chickens, a uh, couple of fin like canaries, fin uh, zebra finches, lab birds, they don't live the same life as seabirds. It's so true because the the ocean is this reflective surface and on a bright day, you basically have light They're reflecting blue. all around. And yeah, and it's blue. Um, and it's so interesting that you describe that the retina of this uh, seabird actually has the photoreceptors distributed on it to separate the sky and the water and the horizon. Is that what you said? That's so beautiful. Yeah. It's like painting yeah, it was with perception. Beautiful to look at. Yeah, it was beautiful to look at. Um, it, it was it was really cool. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I'm hoping I get like more funding and time and availability to do it. A lot of the species I work with are really endangered. The permits and ability to work with these birds, I they come from all of my collaborators and the people who are also invested in trying to help these birds. So it's been really interesting what I can find just because it's been so it's so hard to get a hold of birds like this most of the time. Why is it hard to get a hold of them? Because they're endangered and there's fewer of them to to capture and study? Uh, not just because there's fewer, there's a lot of protections, uh, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, Endangered Species Act, all of those things can really limit what you're allowed to do with most species. I'm very lucky with the permits that I had access to. Um, obviously, I'm not culling animals. Uh, any any eyes like that come from animals uh, that, that I deal with. I have partnerships with the wildlife centers here on Hawaii. They are very kind to be helping me out with my research and the birds that can't be released to the wild and can't, uh, thankfully, um, I can make sure that uh, their donations to science don't go to waste. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, but so it's a, between the differences between permits and accessibility. Uh, I'm here in Hawaii. We are surrounded by seabirds, but that's not the case. I mean, if you're working most of the places on the mainland uh, Americas, there's not seabirds everywhere. So um, maybe some of these reason, uh, reasons are going to be obvious, but just to state it, why are these birds endangered? Obviously, it's humans, but what are some of the specific reasons? Oh, the list. So seabirds, especially the group that I work, the Procellaria forms, my little burrowing tube nose mm -hmm. birds, they are <laughs> endangered for a lot of reasons. Uh, and my specific family, light pollution is, it's the second or third reason that they're endangered, actually. And the number one reason, yeah, the number one threat to them is invasive species, actually. It's namely cats, because we, oh. on all these islands, uh, uh, cats, rats, and mice, um, and on all these islands, we have these introduced mammals that were never there. And earlier you were talking mm -hmm. about how seabirds, oh, you you talked about how they have, they have these long lives and so much time to learn and change. But the reality yes. is we're talking about birds that are 50 to 65 million years old in their lineages. Like these, these seabirds have lived alone on these islands for millions and millions of years. And we showed up in the last couple hundred and we have absolutely wrecked them uh, with our, with the cats that go out and cat uh, learn that they can take them. Uh, it's one cat can devastate most of a colony. Mice have learned mm -hmm. that uh, an albatross, its hormones and it, uh, and its need, its instinctual need to stay on an egg will override it, the, its desire to get up and away from the mouse. So the mice can eat them alive. It's pretty brutal. Um, Ooh. Yeah, sorry. I, I realized that's a little gory. Um, but, <laughs> no, no, but it's true. Invasive species are one of the they're one of the worst things that have ever happened to seabirds. Um, they're also threatened by things like sea level rise. There's a lot of wonderful projects that are working on trying to move populations uh, of birds to areas that will be safe from sea level rise. 
they're pretty flexible. The birds might move a little bit on their own, but we also don't know the rate of change right now is so fast. So we're trying to uh, I say we like I'm involved, uh, but people are really trying to make sure that these populations of birds have a chance to continue. Uh, Windmills can be a bit of a threat. Power lines are an underestimated threat. Uh, there's the, uh, the first paper that I'm on that was published talked about the way that we, on my old job, we were going about quantifying power line strikes and understanding how many birds were dying on power lines. And there's more papers coming from that, that group talking about the actual numbers. And it's far more than people thought there were, but it's not something you see when it's birds dying in the middle of the night on power lines in the middle of an island where people aren't looking, so. Yeah, well, it's probably the most boring, just in terms of a sound bite of all the things you just listed. Um, and it's probably just doesn't make the list in our culture of um, news flashes coming up on our phones every um, five seconds. It's just we're inundated. So interesting, unfortunately, is helpful to causes. Um, and a power line story about a bird is just not interesting. Um, but it's interesting to note that it's still causing a significant uh, number of deaths. And, you know, in that long list that you you say, I do want to note cats because um, I the veterinarians will tell you, keep your cat inside. And it is because of the songbird populations. Cats mm -hmm. can kill tons. It's one cat. You're, you're totally right. I know this to be true. I've seen cats outside hunting birds for nothing. They don't eat them. They just kill them. And so it's mm -hmm. uh, a lot actually healthier for the cat to be inside, even though it might be slightly more boring. Um, but there's also health reasons for the cat itself. Um, so uh, what is the day-to-day -day of your research? What are you, what, what does it look like in your lab and researching? And um, are, are you doing any field work? Oh, so the day-to-day -day actually changes a lot. Um... I'm not currently doing field work. When I was doing my electrophysiology studies, it was a lot of fun. I was going between islands and I had a lab set up at one of the, uh, at one of the wildlife rehab centers. Uh, so I could work directly with birds that were good candidates for that particular project. And that was fun, but that project has wrapped up. Um, right now, one of the projects I'm working on is actually mostly lab work and bioinformatics. So unfortunately that's the, uh, closer to the reality of most biology where you're doing a lot of work on your computer. <laughs> um, yeah, because it's uh, the because all the lab work doesn't take that long. You get you get the samples that you need, you get them extracted, you send them off and then everything else is digital after that. Uh, there's a wealth of information there, but it's not as it's not as uh, attractive to photograph as fieldwork, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And I have a couple more well, projects planned. That might involve some field work, but yeah, my my day to day, uh, yep, it's not it's it's a fairly typical PhD student's day to day is what I would say. Yes, well, one of the things I think that makes you so unique is all of the field work that you've already done. That you've come to this work as a PhD candidate, having done the field work, and I actually just watched this clip. Um, and it was a of an elder scientist, and he had a scathing review of scientists coming out of school because he said the only thing that people coming out of school these days want to know is is it a peer-reviewed paper and if it's not a peer-reviewed paper then it has no the the information has no significance and the the point that he was making was that if we're only ever going from peer-reviewed paper to peer-reviewed paper that there's actually no room for insight or intuition happening in the field to ask harder hitting questions, which is I think what you have already done coming into this work. Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, I mean, I do. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a very non-traditional student. I, my bachelor's degree is in photography. So, uh, and I have a long list of other jobs that are not on my LinkedIn that are not related to field work or anything. I have, I've done a lot of different things with my life. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think it has benefited me and my, my ability at least to act independently and 
when it because that's what a PhD is. You've got to figure most of this out on your own and do it your own uh, your own way. Um, and as, I I would I would agree about the asking the questions part too in a certain way because I came here from people who were curious and had had questions and intuitions about what they were seeing in the field and no answers. And a lot of the questions I ask and the things I think about and the ways and things that I want to answer come from observations from the field that I know people saw or I saw and that we know they happen and we're trying to figure out why <laughs> and how representative those uh, behaviors and things we've seen really are. Um, I definitely have told a lot of people who are in undergrad and curious about grad school, I always tell people to take at least a year off. Um, at least. There's, there's so much you can do and be in life. And I don't know, yeah, just doing science and hanging out in academia. I actually really like it here. I well more than I thought I would, but there's a lot more to life. Um, and broader perspectives are always a good idea. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what are some of the important findings that you are hoping to convey through your research? I am really hoping to at least get much better visual models for a couple of these birds. And while the visual models can't say anything about what the behavioral result of the what the birds can physically detect will be, and they're not going to tell you anything about the higher order processing in the brain and how the birds are understanding what they're seeing. But if we understand what they're seeing, people can go and use those models to do much better behavioral studies. Because the biggest problem that I currently have seen is people do a lot of behavioral studies, but they just kind of guess with the colors of light that are out there, or they pick things that we think are important and the colors of light that we gravitate towards or consider separate and different. And if we have an actual model of what the birds can physically detect, you can target those behavioral studies much more easily and you can make much more meaningful conclusions. Um, I'm also part of a big collaborative paper right now where we are putting out recommendations for how to measure light because the way we tend, uh, especially biologists and ecologists, people in the field, uh, questions I ran into and I was like, I'm studying light. How do I quantify this to report this in my paper? Light's difficult to work with. It's difficult to understand and it's difficult to measure. So uh, between my work trying to get people to target their studies more appropriately and this collaborative stuff where I'm hoping people interested, at least in working with light, will do a better job at quantifying it so it can be uh, applied more meaningfully or correctly in some cases. Um, it, that's really that's really what I want out of this. <laughs> and where where is this paper headed? Because, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are actually from the lighting industry. We also quantify and measure light a lot. Um, in our own methods and thinking, but I'd be interested to see how that's happening outside of the field of lighting. There are lighting experts involved on this particular paper too. Uh, it's a very it's a very collaborative effort, which is why it's happening. Uh, we all understand that we're not talking to each other correctly. Uh, we we aren't doing things in a way that the lighting industry can interpret, and uh, the light mm -hmm. we and we don't. Uh, and that we don't understand what the lighting industry needs, uh, and they don't understand what we're doing. So it's been it's been really wonderful to be part of that particular group to work together to try to solve some of those problems. And that one, it was accepted to a journal, and unfortunately, I can't quite remember. Um, I can find out later. I think it's the Journal of it's one of the, it's one, it's an ecology journal that I do know that you can send it to us and we can, we can include it. So our, we can get that to our listeners. No problem. Excellent. So, and so I, so you live in Hawaii and, or Kauai, you live, which island are you on? I currently live, I currently live on Oahu. Oh, Oahu. And yes. you are researching uh, birds. And do you have any art forms in your in your life that you also pursue as a hobby? Oh, I have more hobbies than I have time for. But yeah, no, I love to draw. Um, I'd like to paint. Uh, I've been messing around with embroidery lately. 
Um, yeah, art usually finds its way into my life one way or another. <laughs> I cer it's certainly never I far from uh, what I'm doing. And so does this artwork, do you ever find that it dovetails into your work somehow that great ideas emerge in a meditative process or um, how does that affect your science? Artwork is really what gives me the mental space later to come mm. back to science. It's kind of like the advice to like put things down and go take a walk. Uh, I, I do a lot of that too, but um, when you take the time to kind of empty your mind and let it wander and do what it will, uh, it's, it, it's fun. Um, and it's, it, it, it lets you, it lets your brain take a little bit of a break and then it can come back to some of those problems a little bit more refreshed and ready to think about it. Uh, and I love painting and photography also just because light is so interesting. Um, and when you get into the actual science of mixing light and mixing pigments, uh, that is really honestly almost the same as understanding vision and how our photoreceptors are detecting things and picking up color. So that's always something I'm usually thinking about when I'm painting too, which is very fun. Yeah, and I think it's so important that um, on the in the whole of our day that we do dedicate time and space for play because it's so valuable for the human mind. And so it's nice to see that you have these art forms that allow you to play in the same space that you're also a rigorous PhD student in and, um, and that there are beneficial aspects of it. And now I want to get back to your pet. What is your pet pigeon's name? And why did His you name get is... a pet pigeon? <laughs> His name is Dumpling. Uh, oh. And I got a pet pigeon. Yeah, he's... He's round and lazy. I don't know. I don't know. He very much uh, like encompasses uh, what a dumpling is to me <laughs> in some ways. Um, <laughs> but I got a pigeon because they're quiet. They can't destroy things. He doesn't need a lot of activity or entertainment. He just kind of hangs out. He doesn't even fly. He, well, he chooses not to fly that much. Um, he's smart. Uh, he's beautiful. Um, he's a very fancy pigeon and a lot of people don't understand the, the sheer variety of breeds of pigeon that there are. Um, so mm -hmm. there's, there's a color and a style of pigeon out there for you if you're into it. Um, and they're, <laughs> they're what inspired oh, Darwin and his theory of evolution. Pigeons. Oh, interesting. Pigeons are what inspired Darwin. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was not, it was not actually the finches. The finches were forgotten in a corner for a very long time. And he came back to them later, actually. Pigeons were one of his obsessions that inspired him to really think about evolution because he saw the variety of feathering and colors and shapes of these birds that could be produced through selective breeding. And he, and that's what uh, inspired him to think about evolution. So my bird ties into my love of birds and my love of science um, and my need for a low maintenance pet in my life. Uh, that's also mm -hmm. like interactive and personable. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at an image of him or a video of him on your Twitter, and he has these beautiful dust ruffle, ruffle feathers over his feet. And then it looks mm -hmm. as if he's wearing a tuxedo and he's really adorable. I have to tell you. Um, yeah, so I picked I, him up because he looked kind of like a sheer water. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's so important, again, that you have this space of play and this intimate connection to an animal that is similar to birds that you're also studying in the rigor of science. I think that that you have the broad approach to your work. And so um, coming up on the end of our, our time, I do have a question, which is that mm -hmm. you at the beginning talked about how many night sky experiences you've had that you you couldn't list just one and that it's even been an important factor of how you relate to people that you love. And so you also come to your work by debunking assumptions and seeing b beneath assumptions we may not know that we're making. How do you think that the, your experience of being confronted with the unanswerable, the unknown, the unknowable through the night sky helped you to ask better questions as a scientist? I think or did it help you to ask? better questions. I don't know if I've thought about that particular connection. Um, 
I don't know. I think some of it is also just being comfortable with the unknown and having a curiosity and like a sense of wonder about the unknown and being willing to play around and be wrong. <laughs> like, yeah, when you're asking a lot of questions that don't necessarily have answers, your ideas aren't always correct. And that's okay. So true. Um, so true. But yeah, um, I don't know. Instead of finding that space to be a stressful space, but finding it somewhere, um, I don't know, inspiring and uh, full of wonder instead of something to be afraid of is, uh, I'd say that I could connect that to the night sky and uh, the unknowns of what I am working on. Yes. Well, is there any last research bits you want to leave with our listeners before we go? Uh, I actually needed to think about that. Um, well, I will just say that I appreciate your approach because you bring a comfortability with the uncertainty. You have a willingness to play and you have a willingness to be wrong. And I think those are all such uh, traits that we've lost a sense of lately, uh, a willingness to be wrong. I think it's really important that we uh, can feel that. I myself have felt that on a conversational podcast that sometimes I have aired and I just feel like it's okay to air um, when you come to the work with humility and trying to do your best. And so I appreciate that you ask questions and that you also try to ask a better question because I think a lot of the times we come up with bad answers to bad questions. So I really appreciate that about your work and your approach. Yes, I would agree with that. Uh, it's, it's hard. People want answers. Uh, lighting designers want to know what's the right color. How do we light for all these things? And it's always hard to have to say, I don't know. And <laughs> my research will get you closer, but it's going to be a while before we have a real answer. It's true. Well, I just thank you for, for bringing your compassion to birds and um, bringing that to life through your science. Uh, that route is not often taken in the way that you have. So thank you for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and what your understanding of different species of birds' wisdoms. Um, and it was great to have a conversation with you. Thank you. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.